This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, David Dayan of the American Prospect will have today's political update. There's ominous news about the future of the post office. And he'll report on why we need so many hospital beds in New York City. Yes, it's the hottest spot in America for the virus right now, but hospital beds there have been disappearing over the last decade at an alarming rate. Plus, news you can use from Trump Watch, suggestions about what to watch on TV during all those hours at home. John Powers suggests The Good Fight and The Bureau. First up today on Trump Watch, Mike Davis with our coronavirus update. Mike, of course, is best known for writing City of Quartz. He's got a new book that's come out last week, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. I'm co-author on that one. He also wrote a book in 2005 on another virus, the avian flu. That one is called The Monster at Our Door. Recently, he's been writing a lot about the new virus, including several pieces for the nation. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Well, the virus news this week is about states reopening for business. Last week, Georgia and South Carolina reopened tattoo parlors, also nail salons and barbershops. And this week, they opened movie theaters and restaurants. And Minnesota this week, my home state, also opened some industrial and manufacturing workplaces and some offices. Minnesota expects 100,000 people to be back at their workplaces this week, sort of the opposite of Georgia and South Carolina. That is, Minnesota has a plan based on at least some science. The new rules in Minnesota are pretty straightforward. If you can work at home, you should stay there. If your work requires being on site and there are no face-to-face activities, that means No tattoo parlors, no nail salons, no movie theaters, no restaurants. And your your employer is able to provide masks and gloves and indeed is required to provide masks. And your employer can make sure there is six feet of social distancing. And the employer can also guarantee facility cleaning and the disinfecting necessary to keep workers safe. Then... People can go back to work. Employers must also do health screening of employees, ensure that sick employees stay home. Plus, Minnesota has announced a huge increase in testing organized by the Mayo Clinic and a huge increase in mask production by 3M, which, of course, is based in Minnesota. And, of course, if the virus becomes significantly bigger and more widespread, Minnesota will go back to greater restrictions. And people like you and me who are old or immune compromised are advised to stay home the way they have been doing for a long time to come. The main strategist here is a guy named Dr. Michael Osterholm at the University of Minnesota. I know you've written about his earlier work on the avian flu. He reminds us that the point of flattening the curve was not to keep everybody from getting the virus It was to spread out the infection rate over time so that hospitals would not be overwhelmed. I know you've looked at Osterholm's analysis of COVID-19. What exactly is it and what do you think of it? Well, the Minnesota plan is very well designed and thought out. And Osterholm has been receiving daily death threats from people who just want to total go back to uh, work without any of these controls is, of course, a, uh, a world authority. He points out in one of his interviews that he expects this infection eventually to encompass 50, 60, perhaps even 70 percent of the American population. And of people who are infected, he says up to 16 million people will be admitted to hospitals or require hospital care. So we need to keep keep this fact in the front of our minds. He also joins with other experts in saying that we're talking about 18-month period here, not three months, not until the beginning of next year. 
but that the pandemic will probably run its course over 18 months. Now, the problem with the Minnesota plan, well, the first problem is whether it will be implemented as designed, given the pressure, say, if 100,000 people go back and it seems to work, there could be growing pressure to reopen more and more of the economy, where the essence of the design is this idea. It's like a thermostat. If if uh, number of infections reappear, then you don't let so many people uh, uh, return to work. But the other problem is simply this. If you look at the Minnesota statistics, almost two-thirds of the deaths have been occurring in nursing homes. And there's, as of yesterday, 111 nursing homes in Minnesota that report infections. And nursing homes across the country, of course, have turned into mortuaries. 12,000 dead, but that is not a real number because there's so many unreported and the numbers aren't increasing every day. So one of the most, I would call it almost criminal acts in response to the pandemic by the Trump administration and part of this whole Darwinian, I'm not responsible, let the states do it, attitude is there's been no federal effort focused on nursing homes. When you've known from the beginning, from the first outbreak in Kirkland, Washington, in a nursing home, that a conflagration was almost uh, inevitable. But there's another problem, and this is, is something that the plan doesn't take into account. In fact, it's, I've had difficulty finding anybody talking about this, which is most of us in our age group don't live in nursing homes or by ourselves. We live in multi-generational families. And the problem is that people going back to work, of course, can bring those infections back home. People who've tested positive on the antibody test for having had the disease can get it again. Also, home and others predict that this fall, there'll be a second wave of infections and possibly a lot of people will get reinfected because as the World Health Organization recognized last week, that there's no guarantee at all that this immunity is anything more than, than temporary. Basically, that whole question is still open. So what this country desperately needs is a focused approach on, first of all, people in the workforce who might be going back to work. but go back to work with comorbidities, with pre-existing conditions, heart condition, respiratory condition, diabetes, and so on. But secondly, on this whole problem of how people in multi-generational working-class homes manage the relationship between family members needing to work and older people who have to be protected. And in our case, John, I'm afraid this may be almost forever is the way things are going. Well, of course, we're talking about the United States, Europe, you know, Japan, the, the developed world, you have said very memorably that in terms of immunity to viruses like COVID-19, there are two different humanities. Explain what you mean. Well, in Western Europe, the United States, in fact, in the OECD countries as a whole, maybe a quarter of the population because of age or existing health problems would be considered an in a high-risk group. That is, they have some degree of compromised immune systems. In Africa and in the global south, a majority of people may have compromised immune systems because of malnutrition, other diseases like HIV. There's still 24 million people in Africa that are trying to survive with HIV. Uh, there's a rampant tuberculosis epidemic, and sanitation is something that's hardly been mentioned. Is there actually two ways to spread this? The respiratory route, but it's also possible to transmit it. At least this is the general belief, and this is true of 
almost any viral infection, uh, a fecal-oral route. And in slums and in poor countries where you have fecal-contaminated environments, where sewage runs in ditches and during wet seasons rises up and floods people's homes and so on, this raises the risk that this second route of infection could become more, you know, more common. So there are two immunologically different humanities. And the fear is that we might be seeing right now in places like Gaza, Kibera, the million uh, person slum of Nairobi or in Dharavi and in Mumbai, we may be seeing a second kind of pandemic. And that pandemic may not follow the same course as the one going on in this country right now, in that our pandemic has had very few deaths amongst people under 50 unless they were already compromised. But that could change. The demographics of it could change when so many people are hungry, don't have proper sanitation, and to an astonishing extent, don't even have clean water and soap to wash their hands in. And certainly in slums can't follow social distancing. What's going to happen to people in the in the global south? Trump is certainly not going to do anything to help them. His promise is to keep them out of the United States. Europe is not doing much better. But there are a few countries that have rushed to help the wretched of the earth. Tell us about them. I mean, on Trump's side, America first means Africa last or the poor world last. Now, the World Health Organization is supposed to coordinate a global effort with particular attention to countries that are most vulnerable or lack developed healthcare systems. But the World Health Organization has become totally marginalized. It has regulations accepted by all the countries that belong to it on how to respond to the pandemic. No country, and I mean this, absolutely no country fulfilled the role they were, they were supposed to. They turned inward, the response almost everywhere has been a nationalistic ones. Even countries that are bound together in the European Union close their borders and refuse to help each other, raising doubts about its future. The country that always is on the scene and whose doctors have the greatest experience in the world with diseases like Ebola and now with coronavirus are the Cuban medical teams, active now, I believe, in about 18 countries, ranging from Haiti and Angola to, believe it or not, Andorra. Andorra is this tiny little postage stamp country in the Andes, I'm sorry, in the Pyrenees, that's supposedly administered by Spain and France. Both of them totally forgot about Andorra. And so there's a serious outbreak there. Cubans sent doctors to Andorra. And so Cuban doctors for many years have been heroes, not only in the Western Hemisphere, the Caribbean, but throughout the world. Norway, which is the Scandinavian country least affected by the recent wave of chauvinism and xenophobia in Scandinavia, almost immediately started trying to put in motion a rescue medical mission to African countries, which not only involves medical aid, but equally or even more important, and involves a moratorium on debts, because so many African countries pay more to service their debts to American German banks than they are able to expend on health care. There are other little countries that have taken important uh, steps. When Trump cut off American funding to the World Health Organization, which is an absolutely crippling blow to an organization that, even though it's marginalized in terms of coordination, still has several thousand absolutely essential people in the field. When Trump cut out all that, Ireland immediately quadrupled its contribution. Portugal giving aid to uh, ex-Portuguese colonies. But at the end of the day, there's only one power, one large country that has the, the resources, the experience, and the willingness 
to be a really significant factor on the ground, and that's, of course, China. When all the EU countries turned down Italy's request for aid, within two weeks, there was a Chinese plane on the ground, doctors getting off and huge pallets to medical supplies all marked, you know, from the people of China. 10, 20 years ago, those pallets would have said to the people of Italy from the people of the United States, but no more. So China is playing an absolutely essential role. The problem is, just as with American aid and during the Cold War and after, Chinese aid is not without, not without a catch to it. And you're generally expected to sing songs in praise of General Secretary President uh, Xi when you get it. A lot of resentment against China and some of the countries that have become bound to it economically over the last number of years. But the fact remains that only China is sending aid on a scale that makes a difference. And I think a lot of ordinary people around the world, they don't care where the aids comes from, but they will read the sign on the side of the, uh, the boxes. So China sees this as a huge opportunity to acquire something it's locked in before. It has plenty of hard economic power. But this gives them an opportunity to cultivate soft power and moral prestige in the world. There's the virus, and then there's the economic collapse. China was the first to recover from the virus economically. Lots of experts predict that China will also be the engine behind the economic recovery, not only of Asia, but also of Europe and of the United States. Trump, on the other hand, needs an enemy and has decided it should be China. He may run his re-election campaign on a China-bashing platform, promising that in the new economy that will come out of the current collapse, Chinese production for American consumers will be replaced by American production for American consumers. Do you agree that uh, domestic manufacturing employment will be reborn in a world where China has been eclipsed economically? This is Trump's version of a Pacific cargo cult. You know, where you go ahead and build the, uh, the runway and, and then you wait for the white gods to return with their planes and, and their goodies. Well, this isn't going to happen that way because as capital is repatriated to the extent that it is from China, but also from the uh, Southeast Asian periphery, where China has now exported most of its low-wage jobs to Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, if that capital is repatriated, you're not going to repatriate the jobs that were lost because the factories that are set up in the United States are most likely to be automated. There's a wide agreement amongst uh, economists about that. Secondly, those jobs may go to Mexico, all power to Mexico, rather than back to uh, Youngstown or, you know, or Battle Creek. So this is something of a, of a fantasy. But the real, I, I think, even bigger problem here is that in 2008, China adopted this massive stimulus package, basically investments in infrastructure, the beginning of the Belt and Road program, unifying, creating an infrastructure for the unification of Eurasia. But China's never recovered from 2008. It has the biggest debt bubble in the world. Its infrastructure investments have misallocated massive amounts of national saving, a lot of them terribly managed. So it's very unlikely that China, and China also faced with a diminishing demand in, in, in the world market as the recession continues, can be the engine that pulls the rest of the world out of the recession. So where is the engine that will do that? This country, very unlikely. Europe, almost certainly not at all. So you're faced with something that we really haven't seen since the 1930s, which is a synchronous global depression. In past depressions, there's always been some country or group of countries that wasn't affected and can play the role of the economic uh, stimulant. In this case, it's hard to see what that would be. 
And that's a very dire environment for the post-pandemic world. Last question. Let's talk about the left in America today in relation to the coronavirus. Millions of young people now call themselves socialists for the first time in a century. And the public health disaster that's going on right now has made clear to pretty much everybody the need for Medicare for all or something like it. And that indeed has been at the center of the Bernie uh, campaign uh, going back now for four years. So that is certainly the number one strength of the left today, that it's been on top of the issue that's now at the forefront of all Americans' uh, thinking. What do you see as the biggest weakness or, or failing of the left in America today? The biggest weakness in my mind is the lack of a consistent to high-priority internationalism that focuses on the global south that focuses on the rest of the Western Hemisphere, that understands that we're living not just through a pandemic, but in an age of pandemics, so that universal coverage, Medicare for all, should be our foreign policy as well. And that we need to revive a a tradition that's weakened and almost disappeared from the scene on an international level. And that's the idea of social medicine, that what you really need to treat are the conditions of poverty and inequality that are, in fact, the primary disease environment, where the approach pioneered by the Rockefellers before the Second World War and continued by the World Health Organization is to focus on cures for specific disease. We need to get back to an understanding of how diseases are transmitted and why people die from diseases. Why almost a million children a year die from contaminated water, for example. But the left needs to recover its sense of internationalism. And right now, in terms of the pandemic, I think it means two things. First of all, supporting emergency aid and debt relief for Africa, and also uh, realizing that places refugee camps in Gaza are slaughterhouses waiting to happen. But the second thing is, as vaccines come online, cross our fingers that they will, the basic principle within the World Health Organization has been, always been, although it hasn't always been practiced, equality of access. I mean, what will happen in the United States, of course, is that the administration will insist that all this be hoarded just for Americans. And similarly, in in Western Europe, and we have to staunchly oppose that. We have to make sure that there's equal access to the vaccine based on on the principle of highest, highest need. This is something we need to be thinking about right now. Mike Davis. He's written about COVID-19 lately for many publications, including The Nation. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure, John. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now it's time for our political update. For comment and analysis, we turn to David Dayen. He's executive editor of the American Prospect. We've seen him all over the place in the media lately, including with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. He writes a daily report on coronavirus political news. It's called Unsanitized. It's at prospect.org. And I think it's the best single thing out there. David Dayan, welcome back. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. The Postal Service is embattled right now, facing a funding crisis, even though everyone is staying home and needing deliveries of basic goods. There's also the November election. We want universal vote by mail, which means the Postal Service. And yet the very existence of the Postal Service seems to be under threat And you have some really bad news on that front. Yeah, so it wasn't really well publicized, but the CARES Act, which was the 
congressional response to the pandemic included an extension of the line of credit that the Postal Service is allowed to tap uh, with the Treasury Department. Uh, This was an additional $10 billion. Now, this is a loan, right? This This isn't a grant of funding. Postal Service receives no funding from the federal government. Uh, It is self-sustaining in its finances, but this was an additional loan facility that they would have to pay back at some point. And there have been reports that the Treasury Department has been using this this possibility of credit to attempt to make major policy changes at the Postal Service. So we know that Trump has wanted to increase the rates on package delivery, uh, as part of his vendetta against Amazon, uh, we, we know that the, post, the Treasury Department came out with a paper about the future of the Postal Service where it asked for all of these changes to, to Postal Service policy. And it seems like they are trying to use this $10 billion line of credit as leverage to get as many of these things through uh, the Postal Service Board of Governors as possible. And so what we learned uh, just, just in the, the past few days is that David Williams, who was the vice chair of the Postal Service Board of Governors, which is sort of like their board of directors, uh, resigned. And my sources tell me he resigned in protest of this attempt by Treasury to meddle in the affairs of the Postal Service. And this is the real first indication that uh, this is indeed Treasury's ball game. That the, this is this is their play. What they want to do is to use this money to dangle it over the Postal Service and ask for all these concessions. As a result, this could have impact on uh, when we get our mail. It can have impact on workers and what kind of wages and retirement benefits they get. It could have impact on who the next Postmaster General is and what they would institute as far as policy. It uh, could have impact on the, the ultimate privatization of the whole system. So uh, this is a major deal. The ultimate privatization of the entire system. That's extremely ominous. I guess that's the, the kind of um, worst that could happen. Well, that's been the end game for, for you know, going on 15 years now from uh, the perspective of uh, the, the, the business interests their rivals like FedEx and UPS, who uh, want to control uh, more and more of uh, the package delivery and mail delivery, and they want access to the mailbox. And uh, they've wanted it for some time. In 2006, uh, this uh, inane law was passed, forcing the Postal Service to pre-fund its retirement benefits 75 years out. Literally, they have to fund the retirement benefits of somebody who might work for them, who isn't born yet. Uh, this is something that no public agency or private uh, business ever has had to uh, endure. And it's responsible for most of the losses uh, that the Postal Service has undertaken uh, during, during these times when not only is email risen, but uh, you know, the difficulties now in the pandemic of uh, uh, businesses use direct mail not being able to afford it anymore. So uh, uh, that's, that's always been the end game here. And uh, if you give up the universal service mission, if you give up access, uh, universal and, and exclusive access to the mailbox, what you're going to end up with is a hobbled system and a privatized system. Well, let's assume the Democrats win control of the White House uh, in next January, they also seat a Senate with a majority of Democrats. What could we hope for? What should we ask for for the Democrats? David Williams should come back. Uh, that's number one. He should probably be made the chair of the Board of Governors, if not the Postmaster General, uh, and put in a position to have the post office succeed. So Williams was the Inspector General of the Postal Service. And while he was there in 2014, he wrote the uh, white paper that promoted the idea of postal banking, returning to postal banking. We had it in this country from 1911 to 1967, uh, uh, a postal banking account that anyone in the United States can access. Uh, This would eliminate 
uh, the unbanked and underbanked, uh, we give them an option uh, that uh, wouldn't wouldn't break their 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 financial pocketbook, uh, and it would reduce the extreme impact of alternative financial services, predatory financial services like check cashing stores and things like that uh, on on the uh, finances of, of vulnerable people. And it would stabilize to a certain degree uh, postal service finances. So you could expect if Williams was uh, the lead policymaker at the postal service that there would be some pilot programs around this because it could be done to a certain degree without needing Congress to get involved. Uh, and so uh, if, if Democrats sweep uh, in 2020, I, I would hope that they would put people in place in the Postal Service uh, hierarchy in a position to succeed and uh, innovate and transform their mission rather than hobbling them and uh, trying like a loan shark to get concessions out of them in exchange for, for loans. Also want to ask you about the situation with hospital beds in New York City. The city finally seems to be coming off of a terrifying spike in coronavirus hospitalizations. Despite the, you know, heroic efforts by healthcare workers, there were th- they were thousands of beds short at the peak last month. Yes, the pandemic in New York City was one of the worst in the world with a, a thousand deaths a day at one point. But you say there's another reason for the shortage of hospital beds in New York City. Yeah, it's a, it's a simple reason. Uh, uh, over the last uh, couple decades, uh, New York City shuttered a bunch of hospitals. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and if you have less hospitals, you have fewer beds. Specifically, New York City between 2002 and 2013, closed 22 different hospitals, and that is uh, cumulatively about 6,000 beds. Uh, you know, they opened up the Javits Center to uh, 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 turn it into a makeshift uh, uh, medical center, and they had 1,000 beds in there. They had this, this ship, this naval ship, the USNS Comfort, come over. There were 1,000 beds in there. So what New York City got rid of is equal to three Javits Centers and three uh, comfort ships combined. So all of this lost capacity was done for financial reasons. It was said that, well, if we get rid of this excess slack in the system and we don't have to you know, maintain it, then uh, prices will be cheaper for everybody and everybody will be better off. Well, that has not borne out in any way. Prices per patient in New York City are about 50% above the national average, at least the increase year over year is. Uh, And the reason for this is pretty simple. When you have fewer hospital beds, you have a more consolidated system and you have the ability to charge higher prices. The reason that healthcare is so out of control in the United States is that prices are the largest in the Western world. That's because of the inputs like uh, prescription drugs and medical supplies and the middlemen in the system that, that profit off of the sale of those. But it's also because hospital networks are highly concentrated. And uh, there was this hidden risk in the system to operate in this fashion that what happens when there's a surge of need for all these hospital beds. And that's what we experienced during uh, the coronavirus pandemic in New York City uh, over the last month. So I have the same question about this situation as I did about the post office. Let's assume the Democrats regain control of the White House and the Senate in uh, November and take office in January. What can they do about the concentration of hospitals and the closing of hospitals? We absolutely have to have a competition policy that understands that these markets are broken, that they are too consolidated, and that they need to be broken up so that the market is, is better aligned with public health rather than corporate profits. Uh, it's, it's really as simple as that. We need stronger antitrust enforcement to stop these mergers of hospitals and to, uh, in cases where you have entire cities that uh, operate off one healthcare system, that they're, they're broken up and put into competition with one another so that uh, we can have a more equitable uh, outcome 
for, for public health and uh, the end to, to profiteering that we've seen so prevalent during this pandemic, but also even before it. And this is something that Medicare for All does not deal with. Medicare for All pays the, the bills that the hospitals submit. So we need a separate program to get enough hospital beds. That's correct. And in, in fact, I would argue that Medicare for All's success relies in many ways on uh, breaking the concentrations of power within the healthcare system. Not only because it's going to be tough to get Medicare for All when you have very powerful interests on the other side uh, who are funding ads and, and trying to block any reform whatsoever, but also because you'll have a relationship between uh, a, a single-payer insurance system and a very concentrated hospital sector where the hospital sector is in a better position to dictate terms under which uh, the, 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 the contracts will ensue. If we're going to have a private provider network, I mean, you know, in, in Britain, the, 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 there's the National Health Service. It's nationalized, the healthcare network. Uh, we're not, uh, there's no single payer uh, advocate that is arguing for that at this point. They want a nationalized insurance system, but a privatized healthcare system. So if we're going to have that, then uh, we need to make sure that that privatized healthcare system isn't super concentrated and powerful uh, so that we, uh, with our uh, nationalized insurance system, can better manage the transaction. What are you working on next? Where do you think the next big story is going to be on this, on this whole uh, coronavirus crisis? We are now seeing around the country states uh, reopening, uh, relaxing their restrictions at a time when cases and deaths are still in many areas on an upswing. And we do not have a vaccine in sight. We do not have a treatment that has gone through the, the full level of trials and is ready to be deployed. We do not have antibody tests that are very efficient or, or accurate, really. And we do not have the type of testing system that would need to be in place so that anyone who shows symptoms would be isolated immediately and, and their contacts would be isolated to protect people who are not infected. So you put all those things together and it's a recipe for in a couple weeks, once uh, more people spread through the country and uh, are interacting with one another, uh, it, it could be a real uh, uh, awful situation of, of a continued, not even a second wave, but the second half of the first wave, because the first wave didn't ever crest. So, I mean, that's the main thing that I think all of us should be concerned about, that we've kind of given up on suppressing infections and we're just going to reopen the doors to the economy and hope for the best that there's not a resumption of, of a large amount of cases. We're not going to solve all of the problems that the coronavirus crisis has caused until we solve the, the public health problem. And I fear that we're just walking right past that right now. David Dayan of the American Prospect. You can read him at prospect.org, where you can find his indispensable daily report on the politics of the coronavirus response. It's called Unsanitized. David, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about TV in the age of the virus, news you can use. For today's top picks, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large for Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR, and he was a longtime film critic for Vogue and before that for the L.A. Weekly. John, welcome back. I'm happy to be here. Well, there's a new season of one of my favorite shows, and the first episode is fabulous. I'm talking about The Good Fight. It's on something called CBS All Access. It's about life in a Chicago law firm, sort of, and it it stars Christine Baranski, Delroy Lindo, and a wonderful woman I didn't know before, 
Kush Jumbo. Is that how you pronounce her name? Before we talk about the new season, let's talk about where this show came from. It's it's a sequel of sorts to The Good Wife, which was a long-running lawyer show on regular network TV. Yes, I mean, and that was, in fact, a show that I didn't watch. Everybody I knew watched it, but somehow I didn't. Maybe because in my job, I, I came to it late and was so many episodes behind that I realized I could never catch up to review it. My, my, my producer at Fresh Air, who loved the show, once wanted me to do it, and I realized that I had 190 hours to catch up on <laughs> before I could do it, and I, I told her I couldn't do that. But in fact, this is the, I guess, the spinoff from it, and what's especially interesting about it is that in the move from network to CBS All Access, the show got vastly more daring and went from, from being a very solid network show, I mean, I mean an excellent next network show, to being maybe the, the most interesting show about the Trump era on any available server. We're now at the beginning of season four, the first episode. Let's set the scene here, Bader. The first episode of season one opens as our hero played by Christine Baranski, a powerful middle-aged woman attorney, is alone in her living room watching Donald Trump's inaugural address on TV. And seeing it, I have to say, is almost unbearable for us and for her, too. And she promptly decides that to retire and move to France, where she has enough money to buy a beautiful house in Provence. And, but then the plot unfolds that she has lost all the money she got because of a Madoff-like investment advisor. And that is all of season one is occupied with the Madoff story. Many things happen at the firm, and that takes us to the new season, season four, the opening here recalls the opening of season one. Yes. You know, and in the new season, what happens is basically she's watching, except the thing is that she realizes that Trump's winning has been a bad dream. That in fact, that Hillary Clinton won the election and that this incredibly vivid thing that seemed to have gone on for years, in fact, wasn't real. It was the, the nightmare that she thought it was. And she goes into the office where she's asking people, so who's president? And they're all saying Hillary Clinton, of course. And she says, how long? And they say three years. And in fact, she's now entering the world, which what she thinks is the happy world that she wanted in the first place, because she was a Hillary lover and supporter, of Hillary Clinton being president and everything is going to be good. You know, this, this is the happy result. You didn't get Trump. You got Hillary Clinton. But then she goes to a meeting of the partners who we know well from the last three years, and they're all talking about the scandals. Can you believe Benghazi is still, you know, going and she got a $500 haircut? Who gets a $500 haircut? This is an outrage. It's a great it's a great joke that, you know, that, that in fact, even if she'd won, you still get the same things you've been hearing forever, you know, because the Hillary story is always the same story. May I say what's great about this show is that its irony cuts in many directions. So that given that you're doing the fantasy alternative reality in which Trump loses and the person you wanted to win wins, most other shows would just make a series of jokes about that and about Trump. Whereas, in fact, I don't think there's a single joke about Trump in the entire episode. The meanest joke in the entire thing, I won't give it away, is about the Obamas. In, in fact, there's a very, a very great crack about the Obamas in it, and that what it's all about is getting what you want, and you've made history in the way you think you wanted to make history, and then all sorts of things that you care about aren't being taken care of, and that things boomerang so that in, in, the, in the broadest thing, she has to work basically on behalf of Harvey Weinstein, who from the earlier seasons, she knows is Harvey Weinstein, the sexual, the sexual predator we know him to be. The, the irony is so wonderful. And this is one of the things about this show is that all the way through the series, nothing is ever quite just one thing. Things cut in many directions all the time. And all the way, I've seen the first four episodes of the new season. I'm a critic. I get to see, the, I get to see things a little bit in advance. 
and you think, oh, wow, this is going to be about this. And it is about that. But then it spins off in other directions. And the point of the thing isn't quite what you think the point is going to be. Uh, let's talk for a little bit about the actors on this who are so wonderful. First of all, the central character is a woman of a certain age, and she's not a grandmother. She's not a wise old lady who's lovable, but, uh, you know, a uh, secondary figure. And then there's the fantastic Delroy Lindo. We should say that that the Christine Baranski character is a partner in a black law firm in Chicago, which gives it a certain frisson, let us say. And then let's talk also about Kush Jumbo, somebody I'd never seen before, who's a bit mysterious in terms of exactly what kind of person of color she is. Oh yes, no, I mean it's 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 it is hard it is hard to know, you know, that she is could be biracial, you know, just from her look. Um, and and in fact, she, she's one of those kind of floater type people you don't quite know how to pin down. And because she also works in divorces. She's less politically obvious in, in certain ways. You know, and one of the interesting things was, you know, that one of the members, of, you know, the, one of the characters from the black law firm is basically a conservative judge as the new season begins. You know, and, you know, because the show is smart enough to allow there to be, as there is in reality, a range of African-American people <laughs> rather than just one type of African-American person. And we should also add that the other partner is played by Audrey McDonald, who I think you know, this is a show that has an, an extraordinary number of Tony winners um, <laughs> performing in the cast. And Baranski's won two. I think Audrey McDonald's won six mm. al- along the way. I mean, this is a strong thing. And about the Baranski character, you know, she's in her 60s in real life. She's playing a sexual woman who microdoses, who's politically involved, and isn't any of the cliches of a person of that age. Which is which is which is wonderful to see. And uh, let's emphasize: this season is not a fantasy show or a sci-fi show, even though there are billboards for the show all over our town of Los Angeles uh, on the sides of all the buses, and they all say the same thing: "What is Memo Six Eighteen?" Which has a kind of a sci-fi uh, feel to it, but. This is not a sci-fi show. No, it's not a sci-fi show. I think what happened was the show had been around long enough that it could do that it could do what many shows have done, like Breaking Bad, which is do the, a playful, stylized episode. And I think that what they thought was, and I, I, I'm just projecting here or in, in speculating, is that they were known for being such an anti-Trump show that they thought it would be fun to do the thing where Hillary wins and play with it. But of course, what happens is at the at the end of that show, the alternative reality stops existing. And by the time you come back to episode two, Donald Trump is president again. (laughs) And this is where you get the mysterious memo 618, who in the second episode, which is also shown, is used against one of Diane Lockhart. That's the Bransky character's clients. Yet we don't know what it is. And I can tell you through the first four episodes, you, you know, she starts pursuing it. Yet this is going to be the mystery of the season. You know, what is Memo 618 is the question they're also asking on the show, as well as on the side of the buses here in Los Angeles. And all we see, all we learn about this in the second episode is that it provides a way for powerful people to avoid being subject to the legal system. And how does this happen? Well, it it does touch on certain real events involving Trump's uh, cronies in the last couple of years. So I'm very excited it, to see what happens. It is, yes. And, and, and clearly the theme of it is the corruption of the legal system. At one point, I can tell you in a future episode, I think this is, I don't think this is a spoiler, is that Diane Lockhart says that this is different than politics. This isn't a political dispute. This is actually the corruption of the legal system, which can be political, but is something larger than politics. Because if, if, if the legal system is corrupted, then everything's gone. You know, in the same way that really there's, there's politics to the virus, yet at a fundamental level, the virus is independent of, of politics. You know, the, the, it takes politics to deal with it, but it's doing its stuff anyway. Similarly, the corruption of the legal system is is kind of like that sort of huge virus in the entire system. So we've been 
talking about the good fight on CBS All Access. There's 30 episodes, more than 30 episodes, 32 episodes out there right now uh, that we strongly recommend. Maybe the best show that's ever been about life in the Trump years. There's another show we want to recommend, something completely different. It's a French spy series called The Bureau. Last year you had to pay for it, but now it's free on Sundance Now. All four seasons, there's 40 episodes right now. Tell us about the Bureau on Sundance Now. Yes. Well, the, the Bureau basically deals with, with a group of French secret agents. The Bureau de- more or less handles the people who get sent out under fake names to, to, to work as agents in other countries. The show is based in Paris and begins where one of their great secret agents, a guy named Mallard True, played by the actor Matthew Kasovitz, who's, who's really great, and he's kind of the super brilliant agent, has been called back in. And the next 40 episodes, I think, more or less follow from the consequences of bringing Mallard True back into the office. And what you get is a, such a, probably a, a French version of a John le Carré thing. The, the show centers on the office and then shoots out and you deal along the way with things that, you know, that I are, think are, are different for Americans. Because the French sense of their foreign power, that it will be North Africa where you'll have a story. I mean, there will be Russia, but, but there's also the Middle East where the, where the French occupy a different position than the United States or Britain. They're fascinated with those stories. And so, as I say, you get ISIS, you get, Ru- you get Russian computer people, you get North African secret police, and you get all of that. But meanwhile, back at home, you have all the people jockeying for power. You, you, ha- you have the people searching to try to tr- track down traitors. And then you have the figure of Malotru, who in fact is the genius agent, but is a kind of a rogue because in a classic French fashion, much of the entire plot is inspired because he's madly in love with a woman and wants to save her. And so there's the, that core of French romance. But the detail work is great. The characters are spectacular. The spies aren't all male, which I think is an interesting thing. In some ways, the most endangered one is, 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 is the character named Marianne, who we see at different times go to both Iran and Russia as an, as an undercover agent. It's just a really great show. Probably the best thing, aside from John le Carre, about spies that I've ever seen. This has been news you can use John Powers, thanks for all your help. Always a pleasure, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.